like I said, this time of year is, um, it's a great time of year. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I don't like the cold so much. I don't like the snow. That all can go away. Although I do like snow for Christmas Day. It, it can come on Christmas Day and then it can leave, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I do love this time of year. From, from about Thanksgiving right on through Christmas is the best time of year, as far as I'm concerned. I think part of it is just people tend to be a little bit more friendly, um, a little bit more joyful, a little bit more willing to say, hi, how you doing? Merry Christmas, happy holidays, whatever it is they want to say. Um, people are in a much more giving mood. I think that's a big part of why I like it, but I also like it because of what it, it represents. This time of year, what it stands for, uh, the birth of our Savior, the beginning of our salvation, that whole story starts at this time of year. One of the things that we understand about Christmas, though, um, is that things have been, let's just say they've been changed a little bit since, since the beginning. Um, we have a lot of traditions, and traditions are good things, but sometimes traditions get it a little bit wrong. Sometimes traditions don't tell the whole story or tell something a little bit differently than what really happened. And we're going to take a look at one of those traditions this morning, um, and that's the visit of the Magi. What I want you to get out of this morning is a couple of things. First of all, I want you to understand the, the significance of that event, because that is a very, very significant event in the life of Jesus and in this whole story of, of Christmas time. That's very significant, and we'll get into the reasons why that is, but I also want you to understand what was going on in, in that time with the political and the historical and the religious context of the time, because I think it'll help you understand a lot better what's actually happening then and why things happen the way that they do. Um, so we're going to take a look at, at that this morning. I'm going to show you some pictures this morning of uh, what we kind of think of, our traditional ideas of what the Magi might have been and what they might have looked like, what that visit might have looked like. So we have our obligatory three, three Magi standing, uh, sitting on camels, looking up at the star, right? So that's one image that we kind of have in our mind. And then we have that same idea to Bethlehem, let's go. So we have that idea that, they're, that they're, they're following that star on their camels across the desert. And then we have the, the um, scene of Mary and Joseph and Jesus uh, and the three wise men there. Spoiler alert, they were not there on the night of Christ's birth. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. But we have that kind of idea in our head. And then finally, kind of that Christmas cardy type look of the, the, the star shining down the manger. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of these pictures. There's nothing wrong with them at all as far as they're, they're nice images. They help us think about the things at Christmas and what Christmas is really all about. Um, it's an important thing. But they, don't, they get it just a little bit wrong. And we'll look at what's really happening there. So is that really what happened? These images that we see, is that really what happened? Let's take a look at this. The Visit of the Magi. I like to title it this way. Just who were these wise guys anyway? We have some ideas about them. Now, most of our ideas from the Magi we get from either Christmas cards or Christmas songs and carols. Sometimes we get them from different stories that are passed down. But these ideas that we have, here's what we think we know about them, right? See if these are familiar to you. That they were kings, right? We think, we think that's true. We think that they, that they were kings. This is one of the things we think we know. That there were three of them, right? Because, hey, there were three gifts, so we always think of them as being three that they rode camels, right? That's always a part of the traditional look of the Magi and that whole, that whole thing, thinking about them riding on camels. 
Some even say that they were representatives of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, so that they represent each of um, Noah's sons. And, okay. and we even have names for them. Tradition tells us that their names are Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. So those are some of the things that we think we know about them, right? <coughs> that come from Christmas cards, songs, whatever. Let's take a look at what these guys really were like. <coughs> In the book of Daniel, you recall the story of Daniel. And Daniel was one of the Magi, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. Daniel was among this group. Um, we're going to explain what these guys were like in just a few minutes. Let's take a look at, at where we see these guys in the story here in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 4. You can follow along on the screen. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. The magi are among this group of magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers. At last, Daniel came in before me and, told him, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. And then again in the next chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, this is a different king. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand, writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace, near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the musicians, um, excuse me, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. The man, this man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel, not only was he one of these magi, one of this group, but he also was the leader of them at the time. Um, so he was the, the, the wisest among them. So let's take a look at what we actually do know about these magi. And it's a little different than our preconceptions of them and our ideas from those traditions from um, Christmas cards and some of the carols. So one thing we know about the Magi is that they were very religious. They were a very religious group of, 
people. Um, they were a tribe that were among the larger group known as the Medes. That might sound familiar to you from some of the passages of Scripture. They were a hereditary priesthood tribe. So much like the Levites and, uh, among the Israelites, this group of people, this tribe, was the hereditary priesthood. They traced their lineage all the way back to Shem. They were monotheistic. So they, they believed in just one God. Now, it wasn't the same God that we worship, necessarily, but they do, did believe in just one God. They actually believed that fire was an incarnation of this God. They believed that it was an incarnation of this deity. They had what was called a perpetual flame, and they, they believed that that perpetual flame was kindled by their God from heaven, and that their blood sacrifices that were lit by the fire, um, by that perpetual flame, and they were burned by that fire, excuse me. And so that was the very sacred to them, um, and then they thought that was actually an incarnation of that deity. So not only were they very religious, they were very interested in science, especially astronomy. Um, they were ones that they, they were very familiar with the night sky, and they spent a lot of time studying the stars and the planets and the motions. And in fact, if you, if you may have heard of um, something called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. We read about that in Esther and in Daniel, for example. That actually was all the scientific and religious discipline and wisdom of the Magi, and it actually was defined by them. So that law, the Medes and the Persians, was, was handed down and, and, and kind of um, managed by the Magi. They were also very interested in astrology and divination, um, looking to the sky for uh, signs and wonders and, 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 and prophecies. Um, divination is the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell future events, or discover hidden knowledge, usually by the interpretation of omens or by the aid of supernatural power. So they would look at, at a star, for example, and try to make sense of that and make it say that it was some sort of sign or omen for something. That comes into play in just a little bit here. So keep that, that idea of that omen or that sign in, in mind here. Um, and they also were very powerful politically. Um, they, often sought, they were often sought after by the kings and rulers to interpret prophecies and dreams. We saw that in the, in the book of Daniel. That was not an unusual thing for them to do. They were, they were sought after to interpret those things. Um, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, we just read the story about him, the Magi were elevated to positions of advisors to the king. So not only were they brought in to interpret dreams and prophecies, they also were brought in to advise the king and, and to be one of his special and closest advisors. Uh, Daniel, we said, was in that group, even becoming the leader among them at one point. So that's interesting to, keep in, to think about, that, that he was part of that group of the Magi. They controlled all the judicial offices. So these guys um, appointed judges and controlled them. And, and, and so that part of their, their um, government was all run by the Magi. And they actually chose the king. So in some ways the Magi were even more powerful than the king because they would choose who the king would be. So no Persian could become king unless two things happened. First, he had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi. Second, he had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. So no Persian could become king unless those two things happened. So the Magi were king makers. That's important to keep in mind here. As we think about this story and we think about what happens when they come into Jerusalem, these guys were king makers. So follow that in the back of your mind for just a few minutes here. 
So that's sort of the 10,000 foot view history of the Magi, so you understand them a little bit better. Let's jump into the book of Matthew, where we, where we pick up their story. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. So now we have a bit of an understanding about what they were like. Let's see if this makes a little more sense to us as we read through this part of the story. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So think about a couple of things here. Remember that the Magi were very familiar with the night sky. It was something that they had studied, and they studied, and they studied, and they studied. So they knew what the stars were. They knew the constellations. They knew where the planets were. They knew all of that. They looked for these signs. When we talked about that, they looked for omens or signs or wonders in the night sky. So it was not unusual for the birth of a king or ruler to coincide with an astronomical event, some sort of astronomical event. And then the Magi would then see that as a blessing of the gods, for example, or they would see that as a sign that this was a good thing, or that this was, this was a sign pointing to the birth of that king. Reading through this, this um, account of, of their story, it does appear that they knew that the star signified the birth of the Messiah. Somehow, these Magi knew that this portended the birth of the Messiah. Well, how does that happen? How do these magi from Babylon, from a long ways away from Jerusalem, how does that happen? How do they know about that prophecy? How do they know this is about the Messiah? Well, one of the things that had happened in a religious context for the magi, they had actually assimilated beliefs from several different religions. Um, for example, they assimilated some of Judaism's beliefs. They were greatly influenced by men like Daniel. So they assimilated some of those beliefs into their own religion. Um, in the 6th century BC, Darius the Great selected a religion called Zoroastrianism as the national religion. So now the Magi had their own religion, they had Judaism, and they had Zoroastrianism, and they kind of mixed it all together. But among the Magi, there were members of that group that were uh, loyal and, and, and stuck with one of those three religions. So there were magi that were loyal to Judaism, there were magi that were loyal to their own religion, there were magi that were loyal to Zoroastrianism. So when we look at that, that among the ranks that they were loyal to them, it's likely that these magi were ones that were true to Judaism, that were loyal to Judaism. And so as such, they would have been well versed in the Messianic prophecies. They would have studied that and they would have known. So now that they see this sign in the heavens, this star that, was, that had appeared, they saw that as saying that the um, Messiah had been born or was going to be born. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 is one of those prophecies they would have been familiar with. It says, I see him, but not in the present time. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. It will crush the foreheads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of Sheth. So that's one of the, one of the many prophecies they would have been familiar with as they um, studied Judaism. So now you have these magi that are familiar with Jewish, uh, Jewish um, religion and Jewish uh, prophecies, and they see this star is born. They come to Jerusalem, and they're asking, 
where is the newborn king? Because we saw his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Keep that in mind, too, that idea of the star rising, because we're going to get back to that in just a few minutes. And then down in verse 3, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I've always kind of read that and thought, well, I don't understand why Herod's so upset. I guess because they said they're looking for the king of the Jews, but it's the king of the Jews, but he's just born. Why, are they, why, are they, why is Herod upset by this king that was born when, when he's however old he is? Maybe he's concerned about his sons, I don't know. Um, but it never made much sense to me. But then you have to look at what was happening in that time. So let's take a look at the political background of the time. The Eastern Parthian Empire, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, you may have heard of it um, listed as that, they were isolated from Rome. We know that Rome was sort of the, 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 the big power in the time. They ruled most of the known world. Uh, but there were still parts of the world that they could not get to for one reason or another, and they still weren't in control of. And this Eastern Parthian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, was one of those places. The, the Mediterranean Sea and then a desert made it difficult for Rome to get them, and they were far enough away. If you get too far from the your, from your, uh, rest of your empire, it's going to be hard to hold that, that area. So they never were really able to take over that area. Um, but this, this empire and the Roman Empire were enemies. They fought several wars, um, 63, 55, and 40 BC. They fought wars together. So they were, they were enemies. There was a history between these two empires. There was a group called Megistines, and the Megistines were the ruling body in that empire at the time of Christ's birth, and it was entirely made up of the Magi, and they had absolute power when choosing a king. We talked about that, that they were the ones that actually made that choice and chose the king. On top of all of this that's going on, the present king had been deposed, so he was no longer in power, so now there's a power vacuum in that kingdom. They needed a new king to help them fight with their wars from, for, with Rome. And Herod may have thought that these magi came to Jerusalem looking for that king so that he would fight some more wars. Now, Herod um, was loyal to the Roman Empire, um, didn't want to help their enemies. And so he's thinking, here they come looking for this new king so they can start some more and fight some more wars with Rome. Beyond that, I always thought of, well, okay, so maybe if, if Herod's thinking this, this, this guy's going to become king, he's going to have his, his uh, rule overthrown or his son's rule overthrown. But why is he concerned about three guys plodding into Jerusalem on camels, right? Because that's kind of the traditional idea that we had of them. We talked about that. Why was he so concerned about that? Well, if you take a look at what, what was happening there, there actually was probably a lot more than three of them. Uh, and they would have arrived in, in full force in Jerusalem. And, and, and they would have been riding Persian steeds, not camels. And historians estimate there may have been as many as a thousand mounted Persian cavalrymen accompanying them. Remember, they were very powerful politically. They would have been protected as they went across over to here. So we're not talking about just a small group of three or four or whatever um, people coming into Jerusalem. This is a huge group um, of a, a, a small army that's, that's riding into Jerusalem. You can see now why Herod's a little bit more nervous. Um, at the same time, while they were coming in, Herod's army was out of the country. Tiberius was the commander-in-chief. He had retired. He was commander-in-chief of the Roman army. He had retired. No one had replaced him yet. 
And on top of all of that, Herod, remember, was given the title King of the Jews by Caesar Augustus, and now he hears about a king that's born with that title, King of the Jews. So now does it make a little bit more sense why Herod's so concerned about this? As a child growing up, and even before I started studying this, I never understood why it was such a big deal to him, but now I do. Um, here you have this large group of, of, of Persians coming in, um, looking for the king of the Jews. You can see why Herod's a little bit upset. Down in chap uh, chapter 2, verse 4, Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born? He asked them. In Bethlehem, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come for you, which will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. File that away in the back of your mind. The exact time when they first saw the star. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, Come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So let's talk about this star for a minute. Uh, we call it a star. I'm not so sure it was a star, like we might think of a star. Um, According to what we read here in Scripture, remember we talked about the fact that the star, the star rose, right? They saw it when it rose in the, in the east. And at some point here, even though it had guided them all the way, it went before them, at some point it, it had disappeared, apparently. Because when they come out of this talk with Herod, it says, once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. So we have this phenomenon, whatever it is, in the sky that appears to them, guides them, goes away, and then appears again, guides them to Bethlehem. Not only did it guide them to Bethlehem, but it stopped over the very place where the child was. So I don't know how many of you think of stars stopping over a certain place. Some stars, you know, we, we look, looks like they're moving to us because we're moving along, um, but they don't just go ahead of us. They don't stop over some place. So this is no ordinary star. What it is, we don't know. There's, there's all kinds of thoughts and ideas about what it might be. Um, some say it was, it was an alignment of, of, of planets um, that was a very rare event, and it would have looked like, if they were close enough, it would have looked like they were one star. Maybe. Maybe that's what happened. Um, maybe there's an, a, a, another star that, that had shown up. Maybe it's a supernova. That's one of the, one of the um, ideas that have been put forth. Maybe it was just a supernatural event that God placed in the sky for this very purpose. We don't know. But the point is, this astronomical phenomenon, whatever it was, they called it a star, followed, I mean, um, um, went ahead of them, they followed it, and stopped over the very place where the child was. So this was no ordinary star. It wasn't like they just saw some star up there and said, oh, let's follow that around. Um, so let's jump back in. Down in verse 11, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we talked a little bit about, I gave you a little bit of a spoiler alert, 
that the, that the uh, wise men were not there on the night of Christ's birth, even though that's our, kind of our traditional idea of them. But let's unpack this a little bit. We talked about the star, and, and they, they saw when it appeared to them. Likely, that star would have appeared to them on the night of Christ's birth. That's when they were, probably would have first noticed that star. It would have taken them some time, several months at least, to prepare for and plan uh, for that trip to go across there for, for them and however many people were with them up to the thousand um, cavalrymen that may have been with them. They would have had servants with them. They would have had all kinds of animals with them. So it would have taken some time to prepare for a trip of that magnitude. It would have taken uh, um, several more months to travel to uh, Bethlehem. So if they first saw the star, it would have been months and months after when they actually got there. And remember, I told you to follow this in the back of your head, to remember what Herod asked them. What did Herod ask them? He asked them when it first appeared to them. And so Herod asked about when it first appeared. After he found that out, he decided that he was going to kill all the male children two years old and younger to stop that threat to his rule. Remember that? That's down in verse 16. We're not going to read that verse, but if you want to check that out. He decided every, every male child two years old and under he would kill. And it actually says there because of the time that he got from the, the Magi. They had told him the time they had first seen that star. So he actually probably would have added some time um, to make sure that he was able to get, to get that threat to his rule, to make sure he covered um, that time. So we're, we're, all of that added up. Jesus was probably between one and one and a half years old by the time the Magi actually arrived. Um, which is interesting because, like I said, our tradition is that he, they get there at the night of Christ's birth. Um, but they came, they came later, and it actually says that he went, they went into the house where he was. It doesn't talk about a stable where he was born. They went into the house that he was, and they saw him. And then they brought their gifts in. This is one of the reasons that we, that we tend to think that there were three of them, um, because there are three gifts mentioned, and it doesn't mean that's the only gifts that were given. But, as you're going to see here in just a minute, these gifts were very significant in meaning, and they meant some very significant things. So the, the reason they're listed for us is because of what they stood for. Nothing in Scripture is there by accident. So the fact that these three gifts are listed there is a very important thing to pay attention to. So let's look at these three gifts. The first one was gold. Now, gold, aside from being shiny and, and, and cool and, and, and would get you some things, it also actually represented, uh, it was a symbol of kingship on earth. So this was a symbol of kings. So the fact that Jesus was getting gold as a gift spoke to the fact that he was the king. Um, remember, these guys were king makers. Remember I said to follow that in the back of your head? So they come to Jerusalem asking for where the king of the Jews is. They find Jesus and present him with gold that signifies that symbol of kingship. So that's a very significant event that's happening here. It's a very significant gift that they're giving him. And then there's frankincense. Frankincense was an incense, and it was a symbol of priesthood and deity. Remember, these guys were priests. They would have been familiar with some of these things. So they were looking at Jesus as well as being a priest. And we know from Scripture that's one of the offices that Jesus holds. Um, so he is our priest and deity, that this is also God, and we know that Jesus is God. And then myrrh. Myrrh was an embalming oil. It was a symbol of death and sacrifice, so they also were looking ahead to the sacrifice that he would make for us. Remember, I said these guys were familiar 
with Messianic prophecies. They were familiar with Judaism and the scriptures. They were familiar with the prophecies of what, what the Messiah was going to do, that he was coming to lay down his life. And so they gave that gift of myrrh as a symbol of that death and sacrifice. In just a moment, we're going to see a clip from a movie called The Nativity Story. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I watch it every year. Um, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a movie. They take some liberties with some things, but it's very close to what Scripture shows. Um, so that's why one of the reasons I like to watch it, we watch it in our family. But what I like about this scene we're going to watch, um, ignore the fact that this, is the, that this shows the wise men, the magi, showing up on the night of Christ's birth. We're going to ignore that fact. Because I want you to pay attention to their reaction when they see Jesus and, and their presentation of the gifts. Because I think that's, it's an important thing to see. To me, it really gets to me how they react when they see him and then the, the presentation of their gifts. So let's watch this. of kings, born in the most humble of places. God made into flesh. gift of myrrh to honor my sacrifice.
I love that scene because it, it, I think it shows the, the reverence they would have had and the awe, but the understanding they had about who this child was. Um, this, this was the Messiah. Let's wrap this story up. We know that um, Herod had asked them, as you recall, to come back when they found the child to come back and tell him where he was so he could go and worship him, right? Air quotes, worship him. Um, that's not at all what he wanted to do, but that's what he told them. So in verse 12, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And so these guys were warned in a dream by God not to go back to Herod. His, his, his um, motives were less than pure. We'll call it that. Uh, he was looking to, to snuff out this life. Um, but they returned back to their home. You can imagine what they returned back to their home telling, right? The stories they would tell, what they would carry as a message back with them. Um, this, this, I find this whole story fascinating. And there's a lot of things to this. One of the things I find fascinating about this, this is a great example of the times in Scripture that we see where God steps in and, and, and does some miraculous things to keep his plan going forward, right? We saw it a number of times in the Old Testament. We saw it a number of times in the New Testament when God stepped in, when, when things could have stopped the, 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 the march of his plan, and he steps in and, and, and keeps it from happening. This is one of those things, this example of they didn't go back to tell Herod. They went back a different way. Herod then didn't know exactly where Jesus was. We know at the end of the story, of, of this story, that, that um, Joseph is warned in the dream to take um, Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt, and they were there for, for several years down in Egypt. Interestingly enough, um, historians and, and, and biblical scholars believe they probably used these gifts from the Magi to fund their trip. So uh, that's an interesting little side note, that that was giving them the resources that they need to make this trip that God is about to call them on. Um, so as you think about this story of the Magi and all the traditions that we have, they're not wrong, keep singing We Three Kings, it's okay. Keep using your Christmas cards with the, with the three guys on the camels. It's okay. But just think about what really happened there, the significance of all of that, and the significance of that in the Christmas story. These guys were king makers coming to crown Jesus as king. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we think, as we think about this part of the story, these magi uh, that came from distant lands, they came to find you, to, to worship you, to crown you king. Um, the understanding they had of who you were and, and the significance of your birth. I pray that that understanding comes to all of us as well, if it has not already. That the significance of who you were, who you are, who you will be. Significance of your birth. As we celebrate this time of year, this Christmas time, uh, all the fun that we can have, all the lights, all the presents, all the good food, all the time with family, let us also keep in mind the very reason we're doing this is your birth, that someday you would come to die for us, but that started there in that little manger in Bethlehem. In Jesus' name, amen.